Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In the criminal justice system, it's difficult to overstate the power of the prosecutor. They take on the full authority of the state, representing the citizens of the state or even the nation. But what rules govern the prosecutors as they make life-changing decisions? Decisions that can mean the difference between wealth and bankruptcy, freedom and incarceration. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law at the Cutting Edge of Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Today we have two outstanding guests, both former prosecutors and experts on prosecutorial ethics. Professor Green is at Fordham Law School and a former federal prosecutor, and Professor Royfi, a former state prosecutor at New York Law School. Welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. In my introduction, I mentioned the immense power of prosecutors. When you were acting prosecutors, did you feel that power? Sure. I think it's impossible not to feel it. It's such a huge responsibility, and it's a huge amount of power. So you definitely feel it. And and the office certainly has a lot of power, and you're part of this office. I I think um, Attorney General Robert Jackson uh, in the around 1940 gave a speech where he said something like, second only to the military, prosecutors have more power to destroy people's lives than any other public officials. And um, it's ideally, it's something that's humbling and that you're aware of and that leads you to um, exercise wise judgment and temper your use of the power. But it's certainly impossible not to be aware of the power that you have to say nothing of the fact that you have people with guns who are walking around with you. So you have literal as well as you know, figurative power. The police and the FBI. Yeah. And you have, you have a badge. I didn't. Did you have a badge? Yeah, we had badges. OK. Yeah. I just had you know, credentials that were cardboard, I think. Mm-hmm. So today, why don't we, we get started with some of the, the basics. What's the standard for deciding who to prosecute and who not to? At minimum, the prosecutor requires proof. And so you can't just willy-nilly Uh, charge people or indict people. The legal standard and ethical standard are basically the same thing, which is you need, at minimum, probable cause to believe that an individual committed a particular crime that you have jurisdiction to prosecute. So probable cause, the same standard needed to arrest that person? Uh, Essentially. I think, in general, uh, the understanding is that probable cause is a higher standard at the charging level than it is at the arrest level. But uh, no prosecutor I know in, 20, in the 21st century would um, bring charges just based on probable cause or think that if you have just the bare minimum that it's an appropriate case to charge. And so prosecutors have a great deal of discretion as a legal matter as long as you have probable cause in general you can bring charges, but it's also understood that overlaying that standard are a lot of other considerations that go into whether you bring charges and what charges you bring. So recently in the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case, um, the Manhattan District Attorney, Cy Vance, came out with a um, release that suggested that in their office they have a much higher standard than the legal minimum, and they will not continue to prosecute the case unless they have sufficient admissible evidence to, um, in their mind, convict someone. So um, I think different prosecutors' offices approach this standard in a very different way. Actually, that that was a very interesting case because it was um, in a footnote 
to a motion explaining why the office was moving to dismiss the um, prosecution after uh, Strauss-Kahn had been arrested. And they were explaining that um, the office didn't feel that it could get a conviction, and so it didn't want to go forward. And the other uh, thing they said in that uh, motion that was interesting was that they also believed that in felony cases, uh, the office should not go forward unless the office itself was convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the individual is guilty. So uh, there's no consistent national understanding about how convinced you have to be sub between probable cause and uh, what a professor at Pace Law School, Bennett Gershman, would call a moral certainty. He, he has argued that if the prosecutor is not convinced to a moral certainty that the defendant is guilty, that you shouldn't go forward. No prosecutors I know have ever applied that demanding a standard. But um, in general, uh, prosecutors probably believe that they have to be convinced to some degree in guilt and that they shouldn't just take every case where they have probable cause and just put it in front of a jury and let the jury decide, in part because I think prosecutors understand that the jury system is not infallible, that the jury sometimes, particularly if you have um, compelling prosecutors or for other reasons can convict people. Or a particularly who, gruesome crime. A gruesome crime, uh, biases of various kinds, all kinds of considerations, uh, bad criminal defense attorneys who haven't done their homework and their investigation. Uh, you can get uh, convictions of innocent people and so prosecutors feel that they have an obligation to some extent to be gatekeepers and not to go forward with cases even though there might be sufficient evidence to obtain a conviction. And also they understand that the, um, the process of going through a trial, even if you get acquitted, is uh, anxiety prone and expensive and burdensome and horrible. And so it's not something that somebody should be put through uh, lightly. And so they feel that in general, certainly in Manhattan, that you have to have um, really compelling evidence in order to go forward. I don't think there's a national understanding to that extent. It's not a legal or an ethical understanding, but I think that um, prosecutors in various places, you know, perceive their role that way. Your, your response raises an interesting, an interesting issue, both because we've had, uh, in the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case, we had their lawyer, Benjamin Brofman, on the show to talk about uh, high-profile defense. But more, more to the point, it highlights the differences between the various jurisdictions. For example, federal prosecutors have an, an abnormally high conviction rate. I believe it was 93% in, 19, in 2012, whereas the states have a little bit lower and varying on the states quite a bit lower. Or, or what borough of What borough, certainly. <laughs> so is there, a, is there an appropriate number? Should prosecutions only be brought where, where they're, they're, there's an overwhelming percentage of conviction? I think part of those statistics come from the pressure to plead. So in the federal system, there are, the sentences can be so high that the pressure to plea bargain and accept a plea is extremely high so that fewer uh, defendants are actually going to trial. So I don't know if that accounts, certainly doesn't account for all of the difference, but it accounts for part of it, I would think. So it may be the power that the federal prosecutors bring to bear because the crimes come with such lengthy sentences. That's right. Well, that's part of it, but also federal prosecutors are highly, highly selective in ways that state prosecutors probably are not. So, for example, uh, federal prosecutors have jurisdiction over tax crimes, but you could take somebody who hasn't paid their taxes intentionally or, you know, hasn't paid 
uh, all of their taxes and you could go after them civilly, which is what the IRS usually does. And um, if you went after everybody who evaded taxes in this country, you would have no time to do anything else. Um, and so, you know, it, leaving aside the most um, horrendous federal crimes, for the most part, there's either overlapping jurisdiction with the states, and so the federal prosecutors can say, I'll leave it to the states to do, or uh, it, there's overlapping jurisdiction with the civil uh, regulators, the SEC, the IRS, et cetera. And so you might say, you know, it's not so egregious, I'll let them, the civil regulators go after it. And so if you're gonna be that selective, it does not make sense to bring cases that, that where the proof is borderline. And so I think, um, you know, the, the likelihood of conviction is something that factors into the exercise of discretion in a way that it doesn't on the state side where if you have, um, you know, street crimes are serious. Yeah, but I mean, getting back to your question, it's a very interesting, I mean, there have been times in uh, this history of this city where certain boroughs, the juries have just been nullified. I and mean, even if the prosecutor came out with sufficient proof, they don't like the crime, they don't like the fact that somebody is going to be sentenced for that crime, and there's been kind of jury nullification where the jury decides we don't care, we're going to acquit anyway, so that they're constant acquittals all of the time, and it's not really necessarily a reflection on the level of proof that the prosecutor went in with. So sometimes it is, but not always. So it's a complicated question. So it may relate to the types of crimes. To the types of crime, the politics, the nature of the population in these particular areas. So and the perception of, the pers of police power and state exactly. power. Exactly. Why don't we start with discretion on whether to bring charges? That's a, a pretty large power. As you mentioned, if a federal prosecutor was prosecuting every tax uh, crime, then there would be no, no time left for anything else. How does a prosecutor make that decision, both at the federal and the state level? Why don't we start with state? Well, I mean, there are various levels at which the decision is made. So there's resources that are put into different um, parts of the police department that are policing certain kinds of crimes. So those are the crimes that are brought to the prosecutor's office. And then there are different resources within the prosecutor's office that are allocated to different units that prosecute different sorts of crimes. So if during a particular time there was an effort to get at gun violence, there could be more of an effort to make sure that that was a well-staffed unit that had more ADAs who were able to prosecute that kind of crime. So that can happen on that level. And then it goes down to the individual level of the assistant um, and the assistant's uh, bureau chief to decide whether or not they're going to bring a case and whether it's a worthwhile case. And there are infinite number of considerations that go into that decision. Like what? How bad was the crime? Um, who are the victims of the crime? Was there a lot, great deal of money involved? Is there a big problem that you want to send, a, you know, sort of create a deterrent effect? Um, are there any mitigating circumstances? Who is the defendant? Are there, is there anything about their circumstances or the circumstances of the crime that may make us want to reconsider whether it's worth charging this particular offense that we could charge for the um, for this particular crime? I think actually in some ways there's more discretion. You can disagree with me if you if you want to, but on the state level there isn't a policy that you have to charge the highest crime for which you have proof, but. Um, the Department of Justice has um, a policy where they, um, at least 
on paper, the assistants are supposed to charge the highest crime for which they have proof. And of course, it's you know d- different assistants read that re- that policy differently, but it does create a different dynamic. I think. Well, well that's the policy for once you decide to bring charges. You know, right. which charges do you bring? Right. Although I think the um, the holder Justice Department's dodged back a little they, bit they on, on that. But um, the threshold question of whether you bring charges at all is not governed right. by that. But there are internal Justice Department policies. But uh, you know, I, I think um, I assume large urban uh, state offices have internal policies also because you're bringing in people who just graduated from law school to become prosecutors, and you don't want every individual prosecutor sort of making their own decisions. And so you have both. Um, supervisors, but you also often have internal policies. In the, on the federal side, the crimes tend to be often a little more unique, and so it's not as susceptible to um, policy. But it's the same sort of factors that go in, but an additional factor is, are we the right regulator, or should it be done by the state district attorney's office? And, and then, but then often it's um, sort of things that have nothing to do with the guilt, innocence, or anything like um, you know, which office developed the evidence. So if the FBI or the DEA make the case rather than the New York Police Department, it's more likely to be brought on the federal side because those particular agents have relationship with the federal prosecutors and they want to see their case go But do you, court. as the uh, assistant U.S. attorney or, or assistant district attorney, make that decision alone? Well, on the federal side, the ultimate uh, responsibility rests with the U.S. attorney, and the U.S. attorney uh, delegates responsibility to various degrees. And so every assistant U.S. attorney who might have the case, have responsibility for the case and investigate the case and put it in the grand jury is going to have some supervisor. And so there's going to be the head of the um, drug unit and the head of the securities unit and the head of the uh, white-collar crime unit, et cetera. And uh, then somebody will have to sign off on the indictment and maybe the chief of the criminal division who has authority who's, that's delegated by the U.S. attorney. And then maybe in some class of cases, the U.S. attorney has to sign off. And in some cases, you need Justice Department authorization uh, to bring the case. So for racketeering cases, for example, RICO cases, uh, you, I think you need the, US, the uh, Justice Department. Okay, so you know, there's various uh, you know, degrees of delegated authority, but of course, the person who knows the case is more likely to be the assistant U.S. attorney who developed the evidence and investigated, et cetera. And so that person's um, recommendation, whether to go forward or not, uh, is going to count for a lot. And then there's all kinds of received wisdom and tradition and internal policy. So there's an interaction between a lot of people and a lot of ideas, I think. Nobody's yeah. just pulling the ideas out of the I think at, at the state level, as a... I mean, all of that is also true, that there are policies at all these different levels. I think, as a general matter, if it's a street crime or something like that, um, the exercise of discretion, there's not so much deliberative process. It's when the crime becomes uh, more serious, more controversial, or in some way there's a lot of public interest in it that you tend to go up more levels. Because otherwise, I think it would be the ADA with their supervisor making the decision. I mean, of course, you get signatures. But in reality, who's actually making the decision would be uh, the line prosecutor in consultation with their chief uh, or their supervisor. And 
when you start going up those levels, there's, just, there's something going on in the case that's making you rise it, bring it up to a higher level. It also sounds like the supervisors are being brought in when the case is going forward. How about when you decide not to, not to go forward with a case? I, I, I think um, on the federal side, at least, uh, supervisors are generally involved if you want to close a file, uh, if you want to negotiate what's called a deferred prosecution agreement where you, you say, we have enough evidence to bring charges, but we won't bring charges if you do X, Y, or Z, if you don't commit a crime within the next year, if you cooperate with us or other things. So I think um, unless you're essentially sticking the file in the back of your uh, file drawer and just forgetting about it, I think there's levels of supervision involved. And definitely if you've got, gotten to a later phase in the prosecution. So if you've already gone to the grand jury, for instance, and at that point, point, you later point, you've decided something's wrong with the case, you're concerned about the level of evidence, or there's some other reason why you want to drop the case, at that point, you, at least the state level, you wouldn't do that without consulting a supervisor. And part of the, part of the reason why that's true on the, on the federal level is almost all cases are brought to you by federal investigative agencies, you know, the FBI or whatever. And if they want to go forward and you don't, then that's probably a decision you want to be decided at a higher level than just the line prosecutor because it has implications in terms of the relationship between the prosecutor's office and the agency. Also a little bit of uh, covering your backside. Um, you know, honestly, the federal prosecutors I knew didn't really care that much about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. An interesting question is to what extent, if any, um, prosecutors would go into the grand jury and kind of lose on purpose. If you think you have a bad case, would you? is it okay to go into the grand jury and just not, not, you know, not ensure that you're not going to get a true bill, but do something to make it so the evidence doesn't look as good as... Not give 110. Exactly. In, in my experience, which, which is only like four years as a prosecutor, um, people almost always got true bills if they presented a case to the grand jury. Actually, in the state level, that is not true. The, what do you mean by true bills? An indictment. So when you go into the grand jury, you, the standard is probable cause. Um, and at, if, if the grand jury decides that you have probable cause, they'll issue a true bill, which is an, it, it amounts to an indictment. And I, I mean, that's one, one of the interesting things about the Ferguson case, for example, where the prosecutor uh, presented the case neutrally to the grand jury, which then decided not to indict. I know there's a tradition in doing that in police brut brutality cases in New York and in other places in the country, maybe, but not uh, Maybe you can give some background. Thing. What do you mean by presenting a neutral case? Well, uh, usually when a prosecutor presents evidence to the grand jury, it's for two reasons, one of two reasons. Sometimes it's an investigative grand jury and you're calling witnesses, issuing subpoenas to require them to testify or to bring in evidence, and you're using it in an, as an investigative tool. Uh, the other reason to present a case to the grand jury is because you want to get an indictment and uh, bring a prosecution. And so if you don't want an indictment, ordinarily a prosecutor will not present the case. They'll just make the decision not to indict and you know, decline to indict the case, and that's the end, and they move on to something else. In uh, some police brutality cases, and the Ferguson case was an example, uh, the prosecutor uh, purported, I think, to be agnostic about whether to indict or not, uh, presumably for political reasons, because 
if the prosecutor simply did not present the case to the grand jury, there'd be heat from the community. And if you aggressively sought an indictment as the prosecutor, the police would feel maybe betrayed, and that would undermine your relationship with the police. And so uh, the prosecutor said, I will present all the evidence, good and bad, without editorializing and let the grand jury, tell the grand jury what the relevant law is and let the grand jury decide whether there's probable cause to indict or not uh, without taking a position. That's a very unusual thing to do outside of the police brutality cases. Normally, when you go into the grand jury, you present your case so that you will get a true bill. You're the advocate. You're the for advocate, indictment. and you've already looked through. This is not an adversarial proceeding. You've looked through the evidence. You are convinced, in your discretion, that this is an indictment that should be, that should be, that should come down. And so you go into the grand jury. You present the evidence in an order and a fashion in which you believe it will lead the. I mean, not not in any way manipulate them, but lead them to the same conclusion you have, which is that this is the right result. So the idea that you would go in neutrally is very unusual. You don't normally do that. You go in with an agenda, which is to get an indictment. And that's fine. That's what prosecutors are supposed to do. So the question in the Ferguson case is, if the prosecutor really thought that this was not, that there wasn't enough evidence to indict this police officer, if it hadn't been a high-profile case, he should just not have gone into the grand jury, just dismissed the case on his own, and that would have been it. Because it was so high-profile, and as Professor Green said, there's so much heat from the community, he had to do something. So what he did was go into the grand jury with this evidence. And now he says he went in neutrally. I think from the parts of the transcript that I read and the parts that were reported, it doesn't sound like that. It's that he almost led them to the opposite conclusion. So it sounds like they're using the grand jury almost as a media tool rather than uh, a judicial tool. I, I think um, the prosecutors in general should own the decision not to bring cases. Now, one of the things about prosecutorial discretion is it's pretty opaque as a general rule prosecutors bring cases or don't bring cases, and they don't hold press conferences about Most times you'd never know. Right. And, and what was unusual about the Strauss-Kahn case, just to go back to that, was since the, the prosecutors had already begun a case, they had to explain. They didn't really have to explain at such length, I think, for, for political reasons they wanted to. But um, they had to say something to the judge about why they were moving to dismiss the charges. And so they gave a long explanation setting forth what they saw as the vulnerabilities in the case and um, the concerns about the principal witness's credibility. But in m almost you know, 99 out of 100 cases, they just don't bring it to start with and don't say anything. So here was a case where, obviously, for political reasons, the prosecutor felt uh, that he had to be um, a little more transparent. Well, and normally the grand jury process is, is also opaque. I mean, there's, there are a lot of grand jury secrecy rules such that you wouldn't be able to release what happened within the grand jury. So it was very unusual in the Ferguson case when they released the grand jury minutes. So furthering the idea that he, the prosecutor's office did that as a way of communicating with the public, a very unusual way of communicating with the public, but almost in a similar way as that press release that was issued in the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case. It's a way of making a normally very opaque process a little bit more transparent to the public because there was a political necessity to do so. And it's time for the MC Lee credit for those who are listening for certification. The code for this interview is 52115. 
That's 521-15. And now back to the interview. We talked a little bit about the criteria that goes into the decision. One of the things that you mentioned was how much exposure has this case gotten? If it's a high-profile case, it may be more likely to be brought. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? And can that lead to uh, racially different outcomes? So when it comes to prosecutorial discretion in the areas where it's not an obvious case one way or the other, what you do, you know, in murder cases, prosecutors are going to bring a murder case if they think the defendant committed a murder, um, leaving aside, you know, cases with uh, self-defense claims. But, uh, you know, a lot of stuff is sort of in the middle and you have um, reasons to bring a case or not bring a case. And there's no uh, understanding uniformly about what set of factors are involved. And the fact that somebody is high profile, you could view in two different ways. You could say, we're only going to bring a finite number of fraud or tax or other kinds of white collar cases. And therefore, part of what we're trying to do is get the maximum deterrence for our decision. And the way to make the, get the biggest bang for the buck is to bring a case against somebody you know who everybody knows that's going to get a lot of publicity. So, you so go you're saying if you're, if you're going to be a crook, you might as well be uh, in the shadows? Obscure, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 um, and also, if you don't bring that case, the public looks and says you're playing you know, favoritism toward people because they're rich, powerful, famous, rock stars, or whatever. And so if you want to put forth the idea of equal justice under the law, nobody is too big not to be jailed. Uh, you'll bring the case against somebody Against Dominique well Strauss-Kahn. I mean, that was really what was going on. The Dominique Strauss-Kahn cases in Manhattan was making a very big effort to appear as if it was protecting this immigrant working class woman against powerful political figure. And, uh, you know, that's why it, it required so much on, you know, on the back end when they realized that the char they couldn't support the charges to explain to the public why they weren't going to go forward. And that's why that press release that we just mentioned was so important, I think, for the office to put forward. But to your other part of your question about whether it's susceptible to abuse, absolutely. I think that when there's a high-profile case, that's when a lot of these things, that's when there are a lot of, a lot of the Brady violations, I think, because there's so much pressure to win. When I say Brady violations, there's an obligation to turn over evidence that tends to negate the guilt of the accused. And there have been a lot of high-profile cases where it came out later that the prosecutor didn't turn over that evidence. And I do think the pressure, um, not just in charging, but in pursuing that case, becomes huge for the prosecutor and the prosecutor's office. So here's a place where we disagree. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so um, and I'm thinking about the, the Ted Stevens case as an yeah. example. That, that you would argue. Maybe you give some back. Sure. So um, Ted Stevens was the US senator from Alaska. And federal prosecutors brought a case against him, uh, essentially for receiving um, something of value, uh, construction work on his house that he didn't uh, declare. And so um, you know, they, they went forward. And it's an example of a powerful figure. And he's not you know, so big that they're not going to go after him, et cetera. And it turned out that after um, the jury convicted, uh, it was disclosed that there was significant exculpatory evidence that had not been turned over. The, uh, this was around the time of the change in administration. Eric Holder became the attorney general. One of his first acts 
was uh, to agree to vacate the conviction and not to um, pursue uh, further charges against Senator Stevens. And um, if you were Professor Royfe, you might say, well, here's an illustration of how the uh, internal pressure to get a conviction against this high profile figure uh, is so great that the prosecutors withheld evidence. Where what I would say is, I think prosecutors withhold evidence in lots of cases, but in this case, Tenor, Senator Stevens had terrific lawyers uh, from the Williams and Connolly law firm in DC, uh, had good, the good fortune of a, having an FBI agent with a guilty conscience who after the conviction came forward and disclosed this additional evidence, which was quite serendipitous in a way. And I would have thought that if there's any case in which you're gonna dot your I's and cross your T's, it's a case where there are great lawyers on the other side where you're under a, a microscope. Senator in the right. defense seat. And also where you have multiple prosecutors in the case. So if I were a prosecutor who had a small case and I was doing it alone and I buried evidence in the back of my files. Um, Something I, you would never do. I would not have done. <laughs> um, I, but I think it would be less likely to be disclosed. But if I have a you know, case like the Stevens case where there were a number of prosecutors and FBI agents and lots of people involved because it was a big high profile case, I would worry that um, one of my uh, colleagues with a better developed superego or sense of ethics than I had would disclose what I had done and I would be, um, I think, more cautious. I think that you're, not every prosecutor has the same rational approach to life that you do. So I think, <laughs> while you may be right on some level, I feel like people get blinded and especially blinded by spotlight and the idea that this is gonna change their career. That one case, that one case, they're gonna be in the news and that's the rest of their job. I mean, their life is gonna, they're gonna become famous and then they're gonna move to, you know, that kind of thing makes people act irrationally. So, and maybe take additional risks. And, and take additional risks. I really think that's true, but you know, we can disagree to right. disagree. So, so we should probably take a step back because what, what we sort of moved from prosecutorial discretion to disclosure of exculpatory oh, evidence. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, so it sounds like perhaps there's a disadvantage when it comes to discretion uh, for high profile individuals, whether or not charges will be brought. But then once those charges are brought, we have a whole new uh, a whole new right. range of issues. Well, if I'm the prosecutor, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm only going to do it for a number of years, and then I want to move on to something bigger and better or more lucrative, whatever, here's my chance to be in the newspapers, right? And so if you bring that case, yeah. you don't want to lose it. You don't want to lose it. So what was your, what was your newspaper's case? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I was the opposite kind of prosecutor. Mm -hmm. So I actually had um, a case against a CIA employee for espionage. Uh, for giving secrets to the Czech intelligence service. He was a Czech national. And I did everything I could to keep that case out of the newspapers. And I didn't tell the, you know, the reporters when it was gonna be, there were gonna be hearings. Uh, we did a lot of things behind closed doors. Um, so I, this is an uh, exclusive you know, release. Exactly. <laughs> on top of but, but then again, I just wanted to and be a further, law professor. And further evidence <laughs> that Professor Green is unlike anybody else we know. <laughs> but I, I, you know, but I, I, I actually left the prosecutor's office and took a lower-paying job. So I'm, I'm not the. You know, the You're the exception to the rule. I think apparently. actually the DA's office, the pressures are different also because people the U.S. Attorney's Office tend to stay for a shorter amount of time and they tend to already have pretty good job prospects while as in the DA's offices, people often stay there for their 
life as a career and moving out into a good position is much harder to do. So not that it isn't done, it is all the time, but it's harder, the challenges are harder. And I think that makes the pressures not necessarily more, but different because in the U.S. Attorney's Office is kind of a constant low-level pressure as opposed to Manhattan or any DA's office where I think it doesn't happen as frequently. In most cases, you're not even thinking about it at all. But then suddenly something like this could happen to you, and I do think it makes, it makes a pretty big difference. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.